Hello, I'm Alec Wilkinson and this is Sailing Uncovered. It's episode 20. Coming up, author and round-the-world sailor Casper Craven on how he and his young family changed their lives and sailed around the world to spend more time together. It's a great story and stand by to have your minds blown. And by contrast, we hear from Italy's greatest sailor since Christopher Columbus, Giovanni Soldini, on going to sea to escape the family. Plus, why he won't be doing the Volvo Ocean Race or the Vendée Globe, and an insight on his relationship with Maserati. And it's interesting, it's a really interesting business model uh, for sailing teams. That's all coming up. Casper Craven, can I put your book, Where the Magic Happens, into a nutshell, first of all? Let me, let me try this. So basically, you're fed up with your, your life, your lifestyle, and you decided to turn that around. You spoke uh, with your family, your wife, your kids, and you came up with a plan. You took five years to implement the plan, and then you went off and sailed around the world, and life hasn't been the same since. I think you've just summarised it perfectly there. That's exactly the, the, the scenario. So uh, I think it, my wife and I were in our, our mid-30s, and uh, it probably everything probably looked okay from the outside, but on the inside, we were asking ourselves the question, is this all there is to life? Money was tight, our relationship was under pressure, and uh, we said, you know, what can we do to really create something amazing, an amazing adventure that will fundamentally change the way we live our lives? The book is broken up into um, halves. Two halves, I'd Two say. halves, so yeah. yeah. The first half isn't just about planning a journey. It's, it's about changing your life, isn't it? And there, there is pretty much a step-by-step guide. Exactly that. So, yes, yeah, so if anyone's thinking about this, this is just a sailing book. It's, it's, it's a lot more than that, that it's that whole life transformation piece. And, you know, the, the automatic assumption when you say you've sailed around the world is people think you must have a bucket load of money. But here's the reality. When we had the idea, we didn't have the money. So that first half talks about how do we get the money together and also how do we transform our, our marriage and how we spent time with the kids. So it was that whole story of, of what we did. And then the second half is, uh, is more of the sailing story and what we actually did on our voyages. Now, I'm smiling at that about we didn't have any money. Um, because you then sat down and said, well, how much are we actually going to need to go around the world? But by the time you got to your budget, it worked out at something like, was it $5 million? Five million quid. Yeah. Five million pounds. Five million pounds. Yeah, that's we said that, so, we said, I'm all about setting big targets. So we said we need to get... I was going to say, because a lot of people would say, well, this is what we can afford. Let's... You know, let's fit the trip around uh, around the money we've got, or the money we can create. Uh, but you actually, I mean, that is a heck of a target, five million. And, you know, when we told everybody that's what we were after, everybody laughed and said we were utterly, well, they told us we we're utterly crazy for many reasons, actually. But the, um, the, the, the money side of things was, was one of them. But our, our, our mindset and our approach was, well, let's work out exactly how do we want to live our lives and then say, okay, now we know what we want. Let's figure out a way to go and create that and, and make that happen, which is completely the opposite way to what you said, of saying let, let, what's our budget and what can we afford and what can, what can we do? So it was, yeah. That, that is a fundamental uh, change and shift in, in mindset because I think most people st- start with this is what we've got. Let's fit around what we can afford. Um, so in order to create that uh, that budget that money uh, one of the things you had to do was 
transform your business. Yes. So just ex- explain to the listeners who haven't read the book, you know, where were you as far as your business was concerned? So we had a small um, consultancy business back in 2009 when we had the idea. And we had sales back then of about £400,000. Uh, we were losing money. and uh, quite... Consulting in what? So, uh, so we uh, it was around data analytics. So we'd work with um, uh, companies, take their data and help them to tell stories with their data. But quite frankly, back in 2009, I would have earned more money stacking shelves in Tesco's than I would have done in our business. So the whole idea was, was pretty crazy, um, certainly from that money perspective. And what we did over that five-year period is that I went through a period of, of learning how to grow a business and I ended up pushing the business really hard and I got to the point where my business partner said if you carry on doing that everybody including me is going to leave the business so I got to a point where literally I, I was on the point of breaking everything and then I had to sort of say okay how do I learn how to lead and build a so team what, now? You, you were pushing people beyond what was what was normal, what beyond yeah, exactly. their abilities. So you were I, setting the wrong targets. Is... So, so I came, I, I went and immersed myself. So it was what I would call a very ego-driven business. So I was saying, we're going to do this and directing everybody and telling everybody what they were going to do. And then they pushed back and said, no, we're not going to do that. So for me, the whole thing was then saying, how do we um, build on what each person is brilliant at, bring out the best in every single person, which, by the way, was exactly the same skill set that we needed to get the family ready to sell around the world. But it was engaging everybody in the team and playing to their strengths rather than being ego-driven with me telling everybody what to do. And then at home, you sat down with the family and... um... And this amused me again, um, not because I thought it was wrong, but because it's so corporate. I thought, oh, <laughs> how, how, how would kids, you know, take this on? You actually sat and wrote a family mission statement. We did, <laughs> we did. So not just the mission. So we so so we created. Well, basically, the way I, I talk about these days is we created a story. And I guess you know, in corporate sense, what what's a vision statement? It's simply a story of how the company is going to be different in the future from where it is today. And that's what we did in, in home life and said, we created this story of my, my wife and I, um, you know, clearly drivers behind it. And we created a story of how we wanted life to be different and we called it our vision statement. And we wrote it out, handwritten, put it on the wall in the kitchen next to a big map of the world. And uh, we told everybody that's what we were going to go and do. And uh, yeah, we made it very, very public. But yeah, it was straight out of corporate world, a vision statement, so. So how did you, because when, when you know, one person can decide, right, I want to sail around the world with a family, but how do you get your partner on board as well? Because I, I don't think your wife sailed at the time or she didn't sail much. No. Um, so how do you convince everyone to come along on the same journey as you? <laughs> so this, this is a really important part. So when we had the first idea, um, Nicola, my wife, she'd sailed twice back then and she'd been seasick both times. So the idea of getting on a boat would seem, again, crazy. But what we did is we spent a lot of time talking between us of saying, how do we want life to be different? And actually, right in those early stages, we found we shared only three things in common, that we both wanted to go and see the elephants in Africa, we wanted to go to Carnival in Brazil, and we wanted to go diving on the Great Barrier Reef. 
So we just focused on only those things that we had in common and we cut out pictures and actually uh, the room that we're in here, we've got uh, pictures that we've been cutting out just yesterday talking about you know other things that we want to go and do uh, in life. And because of that, that just created this togetherness and this excitement. And over a period of six months of us sitting down pretty much most weekends and talking about this story of the future, the energy of that grew and grew and grew until Nicola finally said, well, tell you what, why don't we get a boat and then we can join these dots up and go and sail around the world. Um, so actually, it was just by creating that cohesion that Nicola actually came up with that. Whereas I think if I'd pushed and said, let's go sailing around the world, she would have pushed back and said, let's not. <laughs> so it all came yeah, from, that, from that cohesion. And five years is a long time to keep a plan on on track how did you do that because it wasn't you know it wasn't straightforward and we'll we'll talk about um what actually happened to the business in, in a moment but uh, over those five years just give us a, a brief idea of the process so i mean it started with um putting that vision statement on the wall the map of the world so it was in public view so whenever we came into our kitchen it was the first thing that you saw and we told everybody about it and you know so that everyone laughed when we, we, we first told them but we just made but that, it that's good a... sometimes people well i don't know about you but um <laughs> people have been laughing at me all my life um, but it just it just makes you want to achieve what you want to achieve even more if people have laughed at the idea when you make yourself publicly accountable and so, and it's interesting because people came up with all the reasons we shouldn't go and do this. And for me, those weren't things to dismiss, um, but they were things to, we, we wrote down all those reasons that people told us we shouldn't go and do it. We didn't ignore them. And we thought, okay, let's figure out a way to get around all those different obstacles. So how do we do schooling? How do we create the money? How do we make sure we're safe? How do we become medically trained? All those things. Those were really important things for us to consider. So rather than feeling like those um, voices were criticizing us, they were more things that we should think about and take account of. Because if we viewed them as criticism, then we just push back and tell them all the reasons they were wrong and you just end up in an argument and that doesn't benefit anybody. So for us, it was yeah just things to think about and things to overcome let's talk a little bit about the actual cruising uh mm-hmm. what was your um most difficult moment i know there's a, an episode <laughs> in the book where you lost all power yep. was was that the most difficult were there any storms that um scared the living daylights out of you <laughs> so i mean we had a few testing passages so going across biscay sort of straight out of the gates we had some pretty rough weather there um, going across the north coast of Colombia, we had some pretty rough weather there. Um, and then, yeah, the, the, the South Pacific going from um, Savaro down to Nui. We That's when, we, yeah, you mentioned there we had uh, power failure and uh, literally the boat went dark. And so we had to figure out uh, how do we um, you know, work together as a team. So that was, um, yeah, a, a moment where it made us no. stop and think, shall we your, say. Your training is accountancy, isn't it? <laughs> it and, was, um, yeah. I, I have, Back I, in the day. I'm, I'm looking for the, uh, for the passage here where you describe the, the power failure. Um, but there's, there's a paragraph, anyway, where you sit and you work out uh, how many amps you, <laughs> yeah. you've got to cut down. Yeah. And it's literally half a page of <laughs> sums. <laughs> I got I got to the second sentence and went, 
might skip the rest <laughs> and just go to the, you know, the, the equal sign at the end because I'm not going to be able to follow this sort of maths. Um, how much um, does technical knowledge help when you're on, on board the boat? I, there was only, you know, there's two adults and three yeah. kids on a boat. That's pretty vital. It is. You know, it's funny, that that, um, that that whole thing with the power failure, I often liken it to that. Uh, remember the film Apollo 13? Yeah. Where you've got the, uh, the, 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 the power failure when everybody's up in space. Yeah. And I say it's a little bit like that, apart from the fact we didn't have three astronauts, another 50 sort of rocket scientists back down at Cape Canaveral. It was us and the, and the three kids. Okay, so what about, <coughs> what about the kids? What, what about school? How did you organise that? So what's really interesting with the school, right? So if you t- um, say to people that you're going to take your kids out of school for a day, then schools get pretty upset because um, it messes up their numbers, right? Uh, well, especially if, in the UK. Especially yes. in the UK, exactly. Um, if you say you're going to take your kids out of school for two years and you come up with a credible story and a reason why you're doing it, they were like, okay, fine. And what was really interesting is that we spent, a, or we, Nicola, uh, my wife, spent a lot of time talking to the kids' teachers and getting advice on how we should approach homeschooling. And you know, fundamentally what they said is every day, make sure they do some reading, some writing, some maths, and you know, try and follow the curriculum. So actually when we left, we loaded the boat, the boat up with books on the national curriculum. And so you know, we took that whole responsibility very seriously with the kids, and we had to go in different directions with the schooling as we went along. But, but you, I know you say that you didn't have any formal teacher training. Correct, yeah. Um, and by the time you set off, um, the kids were nine, seven, and, and two years old. Yes. So a, a quite a range, actually. And you know, as, as anyone who's sort of um, you know a sailor will know, that when you're on a boat, then the boat always takes first priority. When something breaks, then all the focus and energy goes on that. So schooling suddenly takes a back seat. So what we found with the schooling is that we had to be um, resourceful is probably the best word for it. And I have a story. So I remember about three months in sitting down with um, Columbus, uh, my son, and trying to teach him about uh, the Tudor England and the kings and queens. This was the seven-year-old. This is my seven-year-old, exactly. And he wasn't even remotely interested. And I remember coming, coming downstairs, and after two hours, there was still a, a sort of a screamingly white blank sheet of paper, and the pen hadn't moved. So it's like, okay, we, you know, shift all the books to one side. And so we said, you know, what are you interested in? So he said, I'm really interested in fishing. So it's like, fantastic. We found something that he's passionate about. Something that's quite easy to do when you're in the Absolutely. It's, it's kind of, you, you've got lots of resources around you, right? So he got all the fishing books out. And he started reading about all the different fish that you catch in the different oceans, how big they get, uh, what they feed on, how you catch them. Um, So now he's reading and absorbing stuff. We then start catching fish. So we're catching uh, yellowfin tuna and mahi-mahis and and things like that. And so now he starts drawing these beautiful pictures of the fish. He's now weighing them. He's measuring them. He's writing in his journal about the lat long where we've caught them. We start dissecting them. So he's learning different parts of the fish. And um, later on, he went on to set up a business making and selling fishing lures and writing advice sheets. So then he'd be going around all the other boats and selling these lures for $5 a piece and uh, teaching other people how to go and catch fish. So it took him to literacy, to numeracy, to biology, to, to business, to, you know, to building his confidence, going speaking to other people. So it was just a different take on how to uh, educate. And you, you took up any opportunity available as well to get them to the local school 
schools. I think um, in the Marquesas yep. and in uh, Indonesia, exactly. they attended schools and classes. Exactly. So, yeah, so wherever we went, my ears were always listening out for finding local schools. And uh, little uh, Willow, my, my two-year-old, she actually had her first day at school in uh, Fakarava in the Tuamoto Islands. And um, yeah, I, I found the, 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 the local head teacher and asked if we could bring the kids along for the day. So this beautiful memory of uh, us all climbing into the dinghy and uh, motoring ashore and you've got manta rays swimming underneath the boats, walking underneath the coconut trees. And um, yeah, these uh, kids all speak uh, French and French Polynesia. And uh, you know, the kids had a wonderful time. They, they didn't speak French, but it didn't really matter because kids just sort of work out and um, you know, learn how to play with each other. So tell us about the business. You left it in good health. You yes. turned it around in those five years um, and then you sold it. The question that we asked ourselves with the business is how can we create a business that can run without us? because we knew that we were gonna be setting off and go out there and, and be on a boat. And so there would be a limited amount that I could do to contribute and be involved in, in the running of, of the day-to-day -day operations. Asking ourselves that question forced me to go through the process of making sure we had the right components in place for the business. So having the right culture, having a vision that everybody bought into, a purpose of why we were in business, and just getting brilliant, brilliant people in place who could run it without me and actually will be able to run it better than I was. So my ego took a little bit of a dent at that point, but actually the outcome was pretty good because it meant that I could step out of the business. As we, um, as we sailed across the Atlantic, we had two offers to buy the business. We selected a preferred bidder whilst we were in the Caribbean. And then as we sailed across the Pacific, we were negotiating the sale of the company. Um, so I'd be there on, on the satellite phone in the middle of the night, um, sort of you know, watching the sales, but negotiating probably the most expensive phone calls of my life because we've got two sets of lawyers, satellite phone bills and accountants bills and all those sorts of things. I, I was amused <laughs> that the, the, in, you describe how the lawyers always wanted to know where you were because yeah, they were exactly. fascinated by your journey and this weird man out <laughs> yeah. in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, they always wanted a picture of, uh, of, what, of what life looked like. It's funny, I remember one particular call uh, um, I'm, I'm on the call and suddenly I hear this huge noise from up on deck and I uh, look up through the hatch and the mainsail sort of flying off to the side basically we ripped the clue out so it's like guys I've got to go and sort of the phone went down had to go and sort of uh, drop the sail and uh, figure stuff out but you know that, that that whole thing was only possible because of yeah putting in place the team could run the business that could uh, make it happen without us so uh, and you know the end result and, and do you think you would have turned the business around had you not embarked on this big family adventure? I think there's a strong probability I would, if we didn't have this, make this choice to go and put family first and say what's really important to us, that I would still be running that business. It would be incrementally improved and it would have grown um, in some way. But I think we created far more opportunities, not just for us, but most importantly as well, for the team in the business as well. So everybody in the team went on to go and have fantastic jobs. And the COO of my business is now running the enlarged division inside this large group. So actually, I mean, it sounds sort of kind of strange, but actually us making this personal decision opened up far more opportunities than if we'd carry on doing what we were doing before. Uh, I just want to hear about the Pacific because um, I get a real sense that from the book and the writing that that's uh, possibly your, your favourite part of, mm. of, of the cruise. And I mean, it was just incredible. I mean, right from when we had the, the first vision, 
um, of doing this. I, I had this um, picture in my mind that I would like spend five, 10 minutes every day um, just seeing everything we we're gonna do. And I remember coming underneath the Bridge of Americas. So you come through the Panama Canal and underneath this bridge and you've got the whole of the Pacific just reaching out in front of you. And it was kind of, um, any of the people who are skiers, it kind of feels like you're standing at the top of this um, ski run and it's got the most perfect powder and you're just going to ski for the next six months continuously. <laughs> and it's just literally all there waiting to be done. It's downwind all the way and um, yeah, just amazing weather, beautiful islands. I mean, just the most incredible place. So uh, yeah, many fond memories and can't wait to get back again. So, so have you turned um, a little bit into the Forrest Gump of sailing? Are you? <laughs> <laughs> do you feel like you're just going to keep going so well, so what's interesting now is that you know we are planning different adventures now and not all of them are sailing based so we're going to get a camper van we're going to go backpacking so it's um yeah it's a, so actually the whole thing behind this wasn't just about a sailing adventure this is fundamentally shifting how we live our lives finally you now tour the world um giving talks motivational speeches um, what are your main uh, main messages? So the, the main message is all about um, the things that you um, do to thrive in a family are exactly the same things that you do to thrive in a business. So, you know, survival, mostly. <laughs> sometimes it feels like that. But it's interesting, you know, that, that whole incident in the, in the middle of the Pacific, you know, we were saying we didn't just survive, we thrived because we worked together as a family team and we lived, you know, our values and how do we work together. So my, I guess my message is, you know, put family first because nobody ever gets to old days and says, you know, I wish I'd spent more time in work. But plan what's really important to you and your family and then go and um, make the businesses or create the career that serves that goal and uh, go and do that together as a team. And you know, the fundamental things underneath that is, you know, building on the strengths of your team, caring about the people in your team, listening to what's really important to each person, helping them find their purpose. So the message is around there. So it's, yeah, it's helping other people to thrive in their both personal and work lives. So the book is called Where the Magic Happens. It's available on, well, everywhere, but on Amazon as well. On Amazon, um, absolutely, yeah. And uh, you've done a, a, a book tour of the US already. So, yes. So yep. um, a lot of the, our American listeners will, will know all about it already. Uh, it's published by Adlard Coles. And uh, it's also an audio book, isn't it? Because that was a new experience for you as well. <laughs> it was. So, yes, they're so going along to the Audible Studios in, in London. And uh, Stephen Fry was in the studio just before me, actually. And, and you enjoyed that experience? It was great fun. I mean, it was, um, it was a little bit strange talking to myself in a microphone for, for yeah. 10 hours. But, um, but, you know, it was good. You actually wrote uh, While Sailing? I did, yes. So, the, so, so I blogged as we went around and various um, friends said, why didn't you write a book? So when we set sail from Cape Town to go to Brazil... I would get up at three o'clock every morning and I would write 2,000 words every day. So by the time I got to Brazil, I had the first draft of the book, so it was about 70 or 80,000 words. Um, it wasn't a terribly good book at that stage. It needed a lot of edits and a lot of work to uh, get it into shape. But that was where the substance of it all came from. Casper, Where the Magic Happens, great book, inspiring, engaging, and it's a fantastic story. And I'm not surprised people are flying you around the world to, to hear that story. And good luck with all your projects that are coming up. Thank you very much, Alex. It's been great fun talking to you. Go to our Sailing Uncovered Facebook page. You'll find a link to Casper Craven's book, uh, Where the Magic Happens. And whilst you're there, why not like us and share us as well and spread the word? 
Right, a few days ago, I was invited to an evening, um, which really it was like going back in time a few hundred years to the Renaissance, because I was asked to go to the Italian embassy in London uh, with its marble staircase and its beautiful works of art, its antique rugs, which I have to say could do with a little bit of uh, patching up. But anyway, uh, whilst I was there, I was to interview one of their greatest sailors. The ambassador, the diplomats were all there, the VIPs, and yeah, it was like suddenly turning up at a Renaissance court. Anyway, back in the real world, Giovanni Soldini was great company, uh, and the first thing I asked him about was his awesome record-breaking voyage uh, earlier this year along uh, the ancient tea route uh, from Hong Kong to London, which he completed in 36 days, 2 hours, 37 minutes and 12 seconds. Yes, that's all. Uh, and that's that time is for almost 13,000 miles. Quite incredible. To spend uh, 36 days at sea on board Maserati with a great crew um, was uh, a lot of fun. And uh, a lot of hard work. <laughs> I said about fun. A lot of hard work, but um, well, we was not it all Italian. We was uh, one French, uh, two Spanish, and two Italian. So five people on board. And uh, I would say that the maybe the is a, is a great voyage, really. And uh, when you do this kind of record, you always think about you know the, the old time. And the people uh, with the clipper, they do the same uh, route, and uh, it's pretty much uh, impressive. And so for, us, for us, it was very uh, dangerous and difficult, the first part, because uh, out of, uh, between Hong Kong, Singapore, and then uh, south of Singapore is, uh, is really a tricky place to go around sailing at uh, 35 knots, you know. Because, because it's so busy. <clears throat> because it's very, very, very busy, and there is basically very, very few rules. I mean, you can you can cross uh, people with no light, or you know, with I mean, it's pretty dangerous, and it's also very dirty. There is a lot of stuff floating around. Once you reach the the trade wind, is really nice. It's just you know, perfect condition, lot of speed, and fantastic. So you did the Indian Ocean round Cape of Good Hope, up the Atlantic. <coughs> And then the Channel, and then you went into the Thames Estuary, and yeah. I think it was it was Towbridge yeah. uh, that was the finish. Um, so an amazing voyage, and the Channel can't have been easy. You're talking about the the busy shipping lanes of the South China Sea, but yeah. the Channel is uh, pretty busy too. Yeah, it's very very busy, but it's much more organised. <laughs> so at least you know more or less what to do, <laughs> you know. And uh, <clears throat> why did you choose to do this? What well, what because, made you do? Um, we do with Maserati uh, three, four years ago the New York San Francisco record, and uh, we beat the monohull uh, record of uh, New York San Francisco, and so it was uh, very nice to have the two. You've done a lot of solo sailing, mm -hmm. um, but now you've got a team with you. Uh, how do you pick your team? Well, basically, you have a team even if you do solo sailing. <laughs> you you cannot do anything when, when alone. You do. You don't have to live with them, though, do you? <laughs> uh, you have to live them, yes, because uh, basically you prepare the boat and you work on the boat, you build the boat, and and you share 
all the you know difficulties and the tough life with them and uh, then you just leave uh, for a single hand race but basically the boat and the work is not just yours you know so you have a team anyway and i think it's more difficult to have a team when you are uh, solo racing because you don't it's more difficult to motivate the people so much you know when you do something uh, nice and important together then it's 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 easy to share the emotion and share the things and also the the bad thing and the good thing <laughs> now talking of teams back home you obviously have a wife and four kids yeah. um uh, is there a part of you though when you think of your success as a sailor that you think oh i wonder if i should have spent more time at home <laughs> you ever regret that <laughs> no <laughs> no I, I spend enough time at home <laughs> i think i mean we obviously sometimes it's not easy sometimes it's very tough but i always try to do also special thing with them for example when I won the Jacques Vabre uh, a few years ago, in, we came in Brazil and we make a nice cruise with the boat for one month and it was a great adventure with all the child. And so I think you lose... So, so do they sail now? Because the oldest is 22, the youngest is 11. Yeah, they so. all sail. They all sail. They okay. all come sailing with me during the holidays. Or, you looked at me then as if so well, of course they sail i can't you know <laughs> are you mad <laughs> no because yes this is my life so for yeah, them it's normal course. to sailing you know? you know i try i always bring them holidays with the sailing boat anyway so um finally I like to be in the beach <laughs> with the umbrella no <laughs> uh, finally what's what's coming up over the next i don't know six months for giovanni soldi the first race will be the middle sea race and then we will do the transat uh, from the rock this winter and then we'll see then uh, we we need to understand because unluckily there is not any more fedo yeah. <laughs> And so we are looking for another mod uh, to compete with. Uh, yes, and we know that in the Pacific the, the, there is a few boats. So we'll see. We'll see. We can we can maybe do some uh, Fedo records. Mm -hmm. so, I, I just I just wonder: um, Are we ever going to see you do a Vendée Globe or a Volvo Ocean race? Uh, you know the the problem is uh, the. These two events are very nice, but are very expensive. I try a lot to do the Volvo Ocean Race uh, a few years ago, but it was really impossible for me to find so much money. So I spent two years of my life looking for this money. And now is uh, five years I sailing. I'm really happy. I'm sailing with a very nice boat. <laughs> and I do what I want. And uh, I think... Uh, I think there is a balance uh, uh, between um, what the partner uh, give you and what you give back to the partners. And this balance must be easy. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Maserati is a very nice um, opportunity, but is also, uh, as you said, uh, ragionevole. Sensible. <laughs> Sensible, yes. <laughs> I mean, we try really to do the things to maximize 
all the opportunity we have to, with this boat, and even the fact that the boat go around, we do the, you know, in the last, we do three, nearly three around the world in the last six years. And uh, why? Because we go in all the country where Maserati is making business, we do a lot of uh, sail and drive promotional things that they work very well, and then we optimize that doing maybe, you know, in Australia, the, the, the Sydney Hobart, or in the US, uh, the Transpac, or uh, we try to put together all the, all the um, things that you can do with a boat, and uh, I think this is a, is a new uh, kind of... Uh, think, uh, way of thinking, and it's yes. a new way of financing a sailing career. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, but it's the end, to the end is that we are sailing a lot, we are making a lot of research, and we are really enjoy. <laughs> Giovanni, grazie. <laughs> grazie. And that is Sailing Uncovered for this month. Go to our Facebook page, Sailing Uncovered Podcast, and like us and share us. And there's loads more info on there as well. We uh, keep you abreast of all the big news stories as well. And follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at Sailing Show. Uh, The next show will be in a month's time. And if you enjoy the show, please, please become a patron and support us. There's, if you're listening on the Podbean app, there's a little red button at the top that you can click to become a patron. Um, but otherwise, go to our Facebook page and you'll find information there on how to do it. That's it from me, Alec Wilkinson. We'll be back next month. Happy sailing. <laughs>